Well, good morning, Seabreeze. It's good to see you. I have to admit, this uh, was warmer than I thought it was going to be. I thought I was going to be needing a jacket up here. This is really nice. Well, it's great to see everyone. I also want to welcome those of you who are joining us online this morning. For me, the uh, Christmas season really officially got started a, a little over three weeks ago. I crawled up into our attic, got down the lights, and uh, put them around the outside of our house. Now, I was, I was way early. I was the first one in our neighborhood. I got a little fun grief from some of our neighbors about being so early, but, you know, I, I really didn't care. In a year this weird and this dark, I was ready for a little Christmas cheer early, and so that's why I put them up over three weeks ago. And since I put uh, our lights up around our house, then lights, of course, have been appearing on the houses uh, around most of the houses in our neighborhood. Christmas lights are one of the long-standing traditions, of course, of Christmas, both outside and inside. And this theme is rooted in the major theme of Christmas, which is also the title of this series we're doing in December. It's called A Light in the Darkness. It's one of the major themes of Christmas. Isaiah spoke of this theme 740 years before the birth of Christ, when he prophesied the arrival of Christ. And this is what we read in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. It says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now, the land that Isaiah is speaking of in this prophecy is in northern Israel. And just a few years after this prophecy is written, this particular land would take the brunt of the advancing Assyrian army. And this honestly was not that uncommon for this part of the world. Historically, this particular region was where many of the great battles of the ancient world were fought. And the reason is because it was the only way to travel from north to south or south to north in this part of the world. Everything kind of narrowed down to this, this region. So these two words that Isaiah talks about, gloom and distress, was really common for those who were living in this area. But Isaiah goes on to prophesy that this location that is known for death and darkness and distress and gloom, this dark location in the world, would one day become the epicenter of the greatest light to ever shine in this world. 770 years after this prophecy was written, we read this statement about Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. It says this, Leaving Nazareth, he, speaking of Jesus, went and lived in Capernaum which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. You recognize those two names. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. And then it begins to quote the prophecy that we just read. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So, what Matthew is doing is he's linking clearly the prophecy of Isaiah to the arrival of Jesus Christ. Jesus was the great promised light to those living in the land of the shadow of death. And this is why early Christians picked December 25th to celebrate 
the birth of Christ. It wasn't because that was his actual birthday. It was because that was the day that Rome celebrated the birthday of the sun god, their sun god, Mithras. And they did it on December 25th because it marked the period of time when the days stopped getting darker and they started getting lighter and the sun began to return. And this is why they chose December 25th to celebrate the birth of their sun god, Mithras. So Christians, early Christians, chose this day to declare that the sun god, Mithras, is not real, it's not the the one we worship, they decided to do this to declare Jesus Christ is the true light of the world. So the Christmas lights that we put up this season are not just fun and and beautiful, they have a message behind them. They point to this great truth. A great light has come to those of us living in the shadow of darkness. Now, we don't live in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, but we all live In this world, we all live in the land of the shadow of death. It's impossible to live in this world without being affected by death. And eventually, we ourselves will all face our own death. And what that means is death is kind of like this massive, giant wall in the future. And it's so big, and it's so thick, and it's so tall that it casts a shadow over every day leading up to the day of our death. It affects us. And God sent a great light to us living in these shadow lands. Four verses later, we are given the details of this great light in the prophecy of Isaiah. So Isaiah 9, verse 6, says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is the great light. This child, Jesus Christ, is the light. And he comes, Isaiah says, with four names. One name for each of the four ways he shines light into the darkness of this world. Wonderful counselor, because walking in the shadows comes with a great deal of confusion, and we need the counsel of God to navigate this. Mighty God, because in the shadowlands, there is a lot of danger, and there is much to worry about and be afraid of, and we need the mighty God. Everlasting Father, because walking in the shadowlands comes with a great deal of isolation. We need a heavenly Father and a heavenly family. And the Prince of Peace, because this darkened world is full of conflict and injustice. In this year, 2020, I think the length of these shadows of death, for our personal experience, uh, have been longer and more obvious than I think in most years. Now, life in these shadow lands have always been marked by confusion and human frailty and isolation and injustice. These are not new themes, new struggles. This is always true any year. But this virus has kind of added like a a layer of shadow to the normal darkness. But the good news is that the darker it gets, the greater the opportunity is to see the light, to see the great light that has dawned on this world that dawned 2,000 years ago. So in the final month of this year, 
the month of Christmas, we are, we are going to consider these four names. Wonderful Counselor, because God is the answer to our confusion. Mighty God, the answer to our weakness. Everlasting Father, the answer to our isolation. The Prince of Peace, the answer to injustice. Today we begin by looking at Wonderful Counselor. Just weeks before his departure from earth, Jesus said this to his disciples in John chapter 16, verse 7. He said, I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus is speaking of the Holy Spirit, not himself. That's why he's saying, actually, you're grieving that I'm leaving, but this is good news for you because when I leave, the Holy Spirit will come. So then why did Isaiah say that the child, who was Jesus Christ, would be called Wonderful Counselor? Now Jesus is saying, no, the Holy Spirit is the Wonderful Counselor. Well, just before the four names are listed in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we read a, an interesting phrase. This is what it says, and the government will be on his shoulders. What does that mean? What does it mean for the government to be on the shoulders of Jesus Christ? Well, we experience what this means every time a president is elected. The president is one person, but he is not alone. On his shoulders is his government with many more names to it, the members of his cabinet. So in a similar way, Jesus, of course, is one name, one person, but his birth brings us access to the governing powers of the three-in-one God. Jesus often referred to this government that would be on his shoulders as the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. He often said, I am bringing with me the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, inviting you all to be a part of this. So here's what happened. 2,000 years ago, a child was born. His name was Jesus Christ. And on his shoulders came the entire governing power of God the Father, God the Son, who is Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. So because of that, in the name of Jesus, we now can call the wonderful counselor who is the Holy Spirit our counselor. Without Jesus, the Holy Spirit would not be able to take residence inside of us. Now the birth of Jesus made access to God's counsel possible. But it did not make access to that council automatic. There is a door that we must open if we're going to receive this wonderful council. And there is a path that we must walk on if we're going to guide our lives by this wonderful council. We're going to look at both of these this morning. First, the door. The door to God's council is surprising. It's conviction. This is the door to God's council. It's conviction, the conviction of our sin. In John chapter 16, as I just read, Jesus said he would send the counselor. And this is what he said next in verses 8 through 11. When he comes, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you, cannot, where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. 
Now, we're going to work our way through this verse. And because I don't have a screen behind me to help you keep track, if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to circle some key words as we go through this so that you can help, it'll help you follow along. Jesus begins by saying in this passage, when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt. His first order of business will be to convict us of the guilt of our sin. Now, that doesn't sound like a great light shining in the dark. I mean, most of us already feel bad enough, guilty enough about what we've done. More guilt sounds like a way of descending into deeper darkness, not a way of entering into the light. But the word convict literally means to bring to light. That's what the word means, to bring to light. Guilt is what we feel. It's the emotion we feel when we do something wrong. And because of that, guilt tends to be rather vague. It's, it's an emotion. It's hard to nail down exactly why we're feeling this way. But conviction, on the other hand, is very specific. You are convicted about doing something or about saying something that you should not have done or said. Now, the goal of the Holy Spirit is to turn our guilt into clarity, into conviction. Not to make us feel generally bad, but specifically bad, so that our sin can be brought into the light and be forgiven and its power begun to be broken. But the Holy Spirit, turns out, is not the only voice that speaks to our conscience. The Bible says that Satan himself has a voice in this arena. That's why he is called the accuser. That's what the word Satan actually means, accuser. And so he accuses us. He brings guilt to us. But that guilt is, is always vague. The enemy is vague. On the other hand, the Holy Spirit is specific. Satan wants to keep us bumping around in the darkness of our guilty feelings, feeling worse and worse and worse about ourselves, because he knows that will drag us under. The last thing he wants is for us to get specific, to be convicted about anything specific, because he knows that will shine light on the door to God's wonderful counsel. Because if we're convicted, we just might open that door. We might actually confess our sin and repent of it and step onto the other side of that door and trust Jesus to forgive us. So if, if you feel bad, but you don't know why you feel so bad, most likely that's not from God. That's from the enemy. If you want to know if it's from the Holy Spirit, what I do is I just say, Holy Spirit, could you, could you help get specific on this? Could you link this emotion to something specific so I can do something about it? And if after 24 hours there's nothing specific, I just begin to reject that emotion. It's just a straight-out lie. Because the Holy Spirit is specific. And Jesus tells us that he is specific in three particular categories. These are the three categories. And I would encourage you, again, if you're taking notes, to circle these three. The first is sin. He says, in regard to sin. Second is righteousness. Circle that. The third is judgment. Sin is the wrong that we need to stop doing. Righteousness, the root of the word is right, so righteousness is the right that we need to start doing or continue to do. And judgment is an understanding of what will happen if we don't stop doing the wrong or start doing the right. It's the consequence side. 
of doing wrong and doing right. Now, these three are essential to navigate our life morally. In a sense, they triangulate our position and point us back to God. And without these three, without a clear understanding of what we're doing that's wrong, what we're doing that's right, and why it matters, without a clear understanding of these three, we just drift morally. So the question is, why do we need the help of the Holy Spirit to guide our life by these three? Because we already have a sense, all of us have a sense of what's wrong, we have a sense of what's right, and we have a sense of why it matters. So why do we need help? Why can't we just guide ourselves by our own internal moral compass? Why do we need the Holy Spirit? Well, Jesus goes into specific detail for each one of these three. And he uses the word because to go on and say, this is why you need the Holy Spirit in the area of sin. And this is why you need the conviction of the Holy Spirit in the area of righteousness. And this is why you need the Holy Spirit in the area of judgment. So we're going to look through these briefly because he goes on to talk about these in this passage. First, the first category is sin. He says, in regard to sin, because, so again, you might just underline all these because, so you've circled sin, now underline because, in regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. Now, what Jesus is saying is the real reason we sin is we do not believe in God. But I believe in God. I would think most of you here and most of you watching online, you believe in God. So the question you have to ask then is, why do we still, still struggle with sin? Why do we still sin? The reason is because we are capable of believing many things. And it turns out we don't just believe in God. We believe in other things. And at the moment where we choose to say or do the wrong thing, at the moment we sin, what's happening in that moment is we are pushing God to the back of our mind so in theory, we believe in God, but in that moment, out of sight, out of mind, we're pushing him in the back of our mind, and we're choosing to believe in something more than God. That's why we sin. Because we're pushing him back, and we're bringing the lie of this particular sin to the forefront, and we're choosing to believe that. Now, if God was right there visibly, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have any struggle with sin. That's why there's no sin in heaven, because God is visible in heaven. We cannot put God out of our mind and then sin, because we are living in the presence of God. You know, one of the, one of the weird experiences for me about being a pastor is that almost every time, if someone knows I'm a pastor and they swear in my presence, the next thing they do is apologize. <laughs> almost all the time. And I have to say, it's like, well, you weren't... I mean, they weren't swearing at me. They weren't yelling at me. They just let a word fly, and they have this general sense that maybe they shouldn't say that, and then they remember, I'm a pastor. I'm a God guy, I guess, and so they feel the need to, oh, sorry. Now, of course, I'm just a person. I'm nowhere near the presence of God, but to them, maybe it's about as close as they get to the presence of God, and so just my presence seems to affect their language, and what they say. This is just a small example of the effect it would have if God was right there, not just in our language, but in everything we do. It's so easy for us just to forget, to push God out of our mind. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit, 
We need help remembering the unseen God. Because in these shadow lands, we can't see God. So God gives us His presence, the Holy Spirit, inside. And the Holy Spirit is the one that brings God to mind in the moment and brings conviction when we sin. So we need the Holy Spirit because in these shadowlands, we forget about God. We don't believe in Him. What about righteousness, the second category? Jesus goes on to say, in regard to righteousness, because, again, you've circled righteousness, now underlined because, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. So sin is doing wrong. Righteousness is doing right. It's the other side of the moral coin. Doing wrong is one side. Doing right is the other side. Now, Jesus is saying, for some time now, you really haven't had to wrestle with what's the right thing to do because I'm here with you. I mean, for the better part of three years, the disciples had followed Jesus, not in the way we do now, but, but visibly. They would wake up in the morning and look over at Jesus, and he would say what they were doing that day, and that's what they would do. So one of the great things about that for them is for three years, they really didn't have to wrestle that much with, so what should we do today? What's the right thing to do? It's like, well, Jesus says we're going to this town, so that must be the right thing to do. And Jesus says, we're going to talk to this Samaritan woman, even though that's frowned on in this culture and we're struggling with it, but that must be the right thing to do because Jesus is doing it. So all they had to do was basically look at where the body of Jesus was going and just get their bodies in line with that and follow behind him. But Jesus says, that's, that's going to change for you because now I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going to the Father, and you're not going to be able to see me. You're going to wake up in the morning, and my presence through the Holy Spirit will be there, but you're not going to see me. And you and everyone who decides to follow me after you is going to wrestle with this, so what's the right thing to do? And life gets pretty complicated. And you're going to wrestle with, how do I know what the right thing is in this situation? I mean, some things are obvious, but a lot of stuff is pretty complex. So Jesus is saying is, you're going to need the Holy Spirit. You're going to need to learn how to listen to his counsel. That's what we're going to talk about a little more in the, the path part of the message this morning, about how to hear God through the Holy Spirit. So like us, now, Jesus is telling them, you're going to have to learn how to listen to the Holy Spirit and follow on the path of his counsel. So in regard to sin, because men don't believe in me in the moment, that's why they sin. In regard to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, you can't see me any longer. You need to figure out what, what the right thing to do is without the value of my body here to show you. And now number three, the last category, in regard to judgment, because, again, you've circled judgment, now underlined because, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So judgment is the outcome of our decisions, the right ones and the wrong ones, the consequences. You know, if the consequences of us sinning or of us doing right were instant, you know, the moment we sinned, bad things happened. The moment we did the right thing, just everything went great. If the consequences were instant like that, we would not need any help to do the right thing and stop doing the wrong thing. We would obey God with the same kind of seriousness with which we obey the laws of gravity because the consequences of those laws are immediate. So we have no problem obeying those laws. We don't question those laws. 
But the consequences of doing right or wrong before God are delayed. And as a result, we tend to lack clear understanding of why it really matters whether we sin or whether we don't. Now, the reason for the delay, Jesus is saying here, is because the prince of this world, that's Satan, the prince of this world, now stands condemned. What does that mean, to stand condemned? It means that you've been condemned, but the sentence hasn't been meted out yet. You're standing. You haven't actually faced the judgment. So, for example, example, right now, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad stands condemned. You'll see that phrase over and over again. He stands condemned for killing over 200,000 civilians as a result of the war in Syria. But as of now, he's living in a palace. He has not been punished for his crimes. He is still standing. He's condemned, but he's still standing. There's no consequences. Why? Why is he standing condemned? Well, the big reason is because Satan himself is standing condemned. The author of evil in this world is standing condemned. He's been condemned, but judgment hasn't happened yet. Why? Why doesn't God end the devastation caused by Satan in this world? Because it turns out that Assad and Satan are not the only ones standing condemned in this world. We're also standing condemned. Not with the death of 200,000 civilians, but with sin of our own. And if God brought judgment on this world, if he punished sin, without the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, none of us would survive that day. So for now, for the most part, he leaves many, many people standing, condemned, to give us time to bow to Jesus and let him stand in our place and take the punishment for our sin. But what that means is delayed justice is common in this world. Delayed justice is very common. We see all kinds of wrong go unpunished in our lives and in the lives of other people. People get away with all kinds of stuff. We get away with all kinds of stuff. And as a result, it's easy to take the fact that we're standing and turn that into a permanent condition in our mind and therefore ignore our sin. So, Jesus says you're going to need the Holy Spirit to remind you, even though you're not facing the consequences, one day you will. And the Holy Spirit will bring conviction to remind you, this is a big deal. This is not a small deal. I know you're not facing any consequences, but in the mind of God, this is big. So the Holy Spirit convicts of our sin and points us to the door. And we open that door when we confess our sin and we ask Jesus to forgive us. On the other side of that door is God's mercy and the wonderful counsel of the Holy Spirit. So what I want to do just briefly right now as we start this Christmas season in this Sunday in December, I want to to pause and I want to invite all of us to consider where we are with the one who is the light of the world. So Elliot mentioned the digital program. So I'd like everyone, if you have your cell phone with you, to go ahead and get it out and pull up that program. I'm going to ask everyone to do this. So pull up that program. You can either do that by going onto our website or by texting 47474747 or texting Seabreeze to 474747. 
and the program will come up. And you'll notice that one of the links, one of the options, is a, something called a spiritual survey, and it says A, B, C, D next to it. So go ahead and click on that. Again, this is the first time we've done this. In the old days, like a year ago, we would have a connection card, and you would have a pen, and you could do this. So now we do it this way. So let me explain what I'm asking everyone to consider and everyone to check one of these four boxes. I want you to check the box that describes where you are in relationship to the threshold of this door, your decision about Jesus Christ. And let me explain what I mean by each of them before you start checking away. A, as you can see on the survey, says, already believe, already believe. This is for those of us who at some point in the past, we've come to the point where we realize we are sinful, we have been convicted of our sin, and we have decided to ask Jesus to forgive us. We've crossed the threshold. We've opened that door, and we've walked through that door. And we're on the other side. Doesn't mean we're perfect. Doesn't mean we don't struggle. It just means we've entered into that other side of the door. That's what A means for. So if that's true of you, click that box. B means believing today. And what I mean for those of you, there may be some of you here today, you've been thinking about this, you've been pondering this, and you decide today, you know what? I just need to go ahead and cross that threshold. I need to confess my sin in my heart and ask Jesus to forgive me and get on the other side of this door. That's, if that's true of you today, if you've never done this and you're doing this today, then click that box B. C means you're considering. That means you're still on this side of the threshold, which is fine. And you're pondering, you're considering, you've got some, maybe some questions to ask. That's why one of the boxes is, I'd like to talk to someone. So if you've got some questions and you want some help with those questions, just check that box there. I'd like to talk with someone about that. That's C. D is, I don't believe. You know, it's, right now, I, I'm just, I don't get it. I, I, don't, I don't understand the door. I, I, I don't really think that's true. But for some reason, I don't believe. So again, check one of those boxes, A, B, C, or D. And then if you'd like to speak with someone, then just check that box and we'll get in touch with you. So hopefully I've been talk talking long enough for you to be able to do that. I'll pause for five seconds. All right. I just thought it would be important as we begin this season. This is more important than getting your Christmas lights up. Getting your heart aligned rightly to Jesus Christ. Now, in every building, there is a main door that gets you from outside of the building to inside of the building. Then, of course, there are inside doors that you need to open in order to get where you're going to make progress. The main door is the one we've been talking about to this point. It's opened when you cross the threshold of belief in Jesus Christ. You confess your sin. You ask Jesus to forgive you. Now, if you never cross that threshold, you keep bumping around on the outside in the dark. But once you cross that threshold, belief in Jesus doesn't remove our struggle with sin or it doesn't chase the shadows all away. And that's why we are talking now briefly about the path. There's a path that we need to follow. So the second point is the path to God's counsel is remembering. It's remembering. John 14, 26 through 20, or 24 through 26, Jesus says this about the Holy Spirit, the counselor. He said, these words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said, said to you. It says he will remind you. 
to remember is to call to mind something you already know. What Jesus is saying in part here is the Holy Spirit is not a content creator. In fact, he says, I'm not a content creator. He says, the word, Jesus says, the words I'm speaking are not my own. I'm speaking the words of the Father. So God is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is the content creator. Jesus Christ is the content applier. The Holy Spirit is the content implementer in an individual life, in an individual place. So the Holy Spirit doesn't create content. He reminds us of what God has said that applies to this particular situation. That makes the Bible the vocabulary of the Holy Spirit. So the more you know of the Bible, what God has already said, the more he can remind you. Have you ever tried to talk with someone who speaks a different language than you? It's really frustrating. You know, they say nonverbal is a major part of communication until you try to talk with someone that has a different language, different set of vocabulary, and you realize, no, the words are probably the biggest part of the conversation. Now, I say this because most people would love to hear a personal word from God on what to do. But without time in the Bible, they can't tell God's voice from the voices rattling around in their own head or the voices of the enemy because they just don't have the vocabulary. There's not enough there to remind them of what's needed in this situation. And it takes time, whether it's a language or whether it's the language of the Holy Spirit, the Bible, it just takes time to learn the vocabulary. 2 Peter 1.9 is, is really helpful for me in understanding this. It says, we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you would do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So it starts out by saying, we have the words of the prophet made more certain. Why? Well, the birth of Jesus fulfilled all kinds of prophecies in the Bible. And what it did is it added certainty to the fact that the Bible really contains the words of God, not men. Men can't just time these things and come up with all of these prophecies and make them happen hundreds of years later. So it added certainty to the Bible. And the question then is, how do we use these words to light our path? We tend to treat God's word kind of like a flashlight. You'll use your flashlight when you need it. And when you need it, you go in, you get it, you take it out of the box or wherever it is, and you flip the switch and you shine the light. But that's not how the Bible works. It's not the kind of light that has a switch. It's, as it says in this verse, it's, it's the morning star, sunrise kind of light. What that means is you have to keep paying attention to it over a longer period of time and then there comes a moment when the day dawns. And as it says, the morning star rises in your hearts, and now you can see what God wants you to do. The problem for us is that little word, until. If you're taking notes, just circle that word, until. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. What that means is we have to keep reading, and we have to keep looking, and then finally, eventually, the sun rises. The path to wonderful counsel is just time and consistency in God's word. There's just no shortcut to this. It's kind of the same reason there's no way to speed up the sunrise. You just have to wait for it. You have to, as it says, pay attention. So I encourage you to be intentional. Develop a plan, if you don't have one, that involves a specific time, a specific place, and a daily and weekly routine. And let me just add one final challenge. If you've been doing this for a while, if you've already been reading the Bible for a while, let me challenge you to up your game. 
and invest more time. For me personally, with the challenges and the darkness of this year, I simply, I've just needed to put more time into this in order for me to see personally and then for us as a church what needs to happen. So I would encourage you to maybe up your game. So again, Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Next week, we're going to talk about the next one, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the light that you sent, your son, into the darkness. Jesus, we thank you for shining a light in this world. And I pray that you would help us in this darker time than, than many of us can remember, that you would help us to not just fixate on the darkness. It seems that it's so easy for almost all of us, almost all we can think about, all we can talk about is the darkness. And Father, I pray that you would turn our hearts to spend more time talking about and thinking about and focusing on your words and focusing on the, the light in the middle of this so that we can see the opportunities that are present and what you want us to do. We thank you for those that are about to be baptized. We pray that as they publicly indicate their decision to cross this threshold, that you would allow them to be a light and to reflect your light in this world. We pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.